Well, this is The New Activist. My name is Eddie, and I am just really grateful that you are here. Joining us today is Gary Haugen. Gary is the CEO and founder of International Justice Mission, and if you've listened to the show for any period of time, you know that IJM presents The New Activist. This this is an IJM podcast, and I work for IJM and love it and love Gary. It's interesting when you interview your boss, or put more accurately, I guess my bosses, 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 boss. <laughs> In any event, when you interview Gary, you think, well, you know, what's the what's the angle going to be? Because we could just talk about IJM the whole time, but we've talked about IJM a lot on the show. You can go back and listen to the Lucille Tejito episode or the Sharon Konwu episode, and we get more into the weeds of what we do with IJM. But with Gary, I wanted to take sort of a different approach because I, I look at him, and a lot of people look at him, and it almost has this kind of... Uh, I think we tend to sometimes like deify these kinds of leaders, these people that have started this monumental organization. I think movement would be a better way to say it, right? Because IJM really is ending slavery. It really is the largest NGO in the world committed to ending slavery. And so you look at someone like Gary and you think, how did he get there? And that's what I am seeking to answer today. We're really going to talk a lot about Gary's story. Where did he grow up? What, what were the series of events that led him to come up with the idea of IJM? In fact, only for about the last two minutes of the show are we actually going to get into the work of IJM because I think it's really important for us, especially with the folks that I know that are listening to the show, to think about what it, what it looks like to be in, in high school and in college and have these little flickers of passions in us, but to stoke them and move them in a way that actually begins the wheels turning to do something really significant in the world. You're gonna hear Gary's story and it is not all that remarkable, which is my favorite part of it because it makes it accessible. And it gives me not only just a, a great amount of respect for Gary because each step was a step of bravery and each step was a step out of what I'm sure was comfort. And each step was really a step of faith, trusting that God was before him and that he was moving him towards this. But also hearing his story gets me excited to hear your story and to hear what is happening with you and to hear what might be next in your life. And just as a quick programming note, stay tuned to the end of the show. We have an exciting announcement. How's that for a teaser? All right, with no further ado, here is the conversation that I got to have with my friend, Carrie Haugen. So listen, I want to dive into IJM and your whole career, but something has always fascinated me about you that I wanted to uh, first ask you about. And if I may read from your Wikipedia page, which is just terrible journalism, but it was nice and concise. Um, it says, Haugen graduated from Harvard College in 85 with a BA in social studies, a JD from the University of Chicago Law School, and then you were a Ford Foundation scholar. And for those that don't know, the Ford Foundation is a private foundation with the, the mission of advancing human welfare. Um, from there, you were a visiting scholar in Australia, and in the 1980s, you served on the executive committee of the National Initiative for Reconciliation in South Africa, which was chaired by then Bishop Desmond Tutu. So when I read this, when I read this little part of your biography, it strikes me that all of this was happening from when you were like 18 years old to maybe, what, 30 like you were a young man when all of this was happening. Is that is that timeline accurate? Yeah, that's true. Okay. So, how does a guy 
start at 18 years old on such a defined track to ultimately start and run IJM? It feels like you've always known what you were planning on doing, and you started when you were a little more than a high school senior. How, how did you get to that? Well, actually, I'm in a really different place uh, than where I actually thought I would have been during those earlier years. Certainly, um, when I was in, uh, you know, a kid in elementary school, middle school, high school, I was interested in kind of two things. I was interested in sports and mostly football, but I was also really interested in a way that was not highly socially acceptable uh, in politics. So I actually, up until I was sort of midway through college, I really thought I was going to go into politics. And of course, that just sounds weird when you're like 15 or something. But um, I was really captivated by, I don't know what it is, sort of the, the drama of politics, the, um, the leadership opportunities. I'm sure I was just an ambitious kid too, right? But it was mostly, honestly, about Gary and about sort of a drive to significance um, uh, or, or, uh, or some notion of that. But um, I was going to just run for office and become an American politician. I think um, that, that was the track that I was on, at least in terms of what, what my mind was. Okay. I'm curious to hear more about that because the idea of becoming a politician seems at the outset in a utopian, you know, the West Wing kind of world, a very honorable sort of profession to go into. Yet you said that there was some drive to significance. Can you unpack that a little bit for me? Sure. Yeah. It, I, I did have a view of it as, as certainly very honorable because I was captivated as a kid by stories, by biographies, basically, of great political leaders. So um, very, very weird, but probably by the third grade or fourth grade, like super young, I had written out by hand sort of a little one-page biography of facts about every president. And it did seem very honorable to me. And that's why I think I went into my freshman counselor's office in high school and said, I want to go to Harvard when I graduate. Um, because that's where all these famous uh, government people had gone. So it, it felt honorable, but honestly, it was a lot of uh, juvenile ambition as well. But what's interesting is, was there ever a sense as a kid, like, a, a, was there a, a deep sense of justice? Like, were you ever the kid, like, in the playground that, you know, saw the bully picking on him and you were the guy to step in? I just... Clearly, you know what I'm driving at. It's what's the psychology back behind it? How does a person get there? It's interesting because it. No, I really wasn't. What you also have to picture is the paradox of the last, you know, thirty years of my life has been sort of immersed in all the violence and injustice in the world. And where I grew up, there was just very little of that because I was very privileged to grow up in a very happy home where the family was loving and there was not violence and abuse in the family. We were uh, affluent. My dad was a doctor, and so we lived in a really safe neighborhood um, where I'm sure there was problems and pain around, but it, it's the kind that would, that would have been behind closed doors, right? I wasn't seeing that in my world. So I just lived in a very happy, safe bubble world. And so the, the drama of justice was in books for me, and it was not much part of... of a life I had to 
or reality I had to encounter around me. And that began to change very simply when I went off to college. So I'm the uh, sort of undereducated public school kid from California who gets admitted to Harvard, I think mostly because my bench press was above average and they were looking for football players. You you played on the Harvard football team? Well, you know, I did. (laughs) That's cool, man. I never knew that. I know, but it's... um, I didn't play very much. and um, Hey, man, I was in chorus and Boy Scouts growing up. Like, if I played football, I would tell everyone. I think it's really cool that you played football for Harvard. <laughs> I also tried out for the Glee Club, and they said, no, thank you. <laughs> Actually, you go in there, and, they, and you sing. <laughs> yeah. And they say, mm, no. It's amazing. Don't listen to those elitists. They don't know. Thank you. So you go off to Harvard. You're, you get in, you say, because of your bench-pressing ability, though you were— talented and able to get in without that. But you go to Harvard and what, what about that experience starts to, yeah. Well, it's an urban school. Hmm. And so you just have the untidiness of life that is in an urban environment. And so literally, uh, when you walk from your dorm sort of across, uh, Harvard square, there's homeless people, uh, sleeping huh. in the street. And that is the, sort of the simplicity of it. And the other thing that I was is I was an earnest, convinced Christian. And from history, I had also acquired somewhat of a provocation about injustice and human suffering. But again, it's all in books. So you got to imagine this earnest Christian from a sort of white bread suburb in California is now walking through the city um, and there's homeless people. And not only that, there's stories in the paper and people are talking about the racial violence in the city and that it's super cold in the winter. And there's uh, also stories about people who can't afford uh, to heat their homes. And so they're so poor, they're shivering in the cold. And now all of these, by just changing context, right, start to become issues. And fortunately, there were some other Christians in my um, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship who were really quite intentional about asking, hey, well, how should a Christian respond to these things? And the other thing that was going on on the college campus in the early 80s when I was there was all the protests about the apartheid regime in South Africa. Oh, of course. And so I remember I was taking a course on the role of the church and the civil rights movement uh, up at the Harvard Divinity School. And there was a poster in the hall of the Divinity School that said, a modest proposal for peace, colon, that the Christians of the world would stop killing each other. (laughs) Oh. I I think it was a, um, actually a poster about uh, Catholic and Protestants going at it in Northern Ireland. But as I learned about the problems in South Africa, I realized that here was the most famous injustice at that time going on in the world, just vicious, racist regime that was perpetrated by super devout white Christians in South Africa. And the victims of the regime were very devout black South African Christians. Both those populations went uh, to church at a rate of about 80% um, in South Africa. So these were issues that just started to become, in the proper way that it should, in a, in a college student's mind and heart that's being opened up to you know, the suffering in the world, 
it bounced around inside me with now the growing uh, awareness of the teachings of Jesus about what it means to love your neighbor, about what justice is about. And it started to have pretty powerful implications, I felt, for me. And honestly, I can remember feeling, because of that bubble-wrapped world that I'd grown up in, and the passionate description of God's entanglement with the suffering of the world, that there was just always something about God I would never be very close to or understand very deeply as long as I was isolated from suffering in the world. And so there actually began to be this desire in my heart to draw closer to this reality that seemed so close to the God of to the heart of God in sort of this way that you only know somebody well if you know where they've been, right? And that started to occur to me that God and that Jesus in particular um, was present in all these places of great suffering and pain. And how could I possibly know him very deeply if I didn't know about where he'd been? So you then go to South Africa, and I'm sorry to be a little nonlinear here, but you you go to South Africa. That in and of itself is a big step. Like, was your what'd your mom say? Was she okay with it? Yeah, I mean, they 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 were supportive. I had to raise money, you know, to go. Yeah, yeah. My parents were very worried because this was the era of the South African crisis, where every night on the news, it was sort of like the Intifada in in Palestine, or um, yeah. This is no joke. Like, this is actual danger that you are walking into. Yeah, and I, I really, yes. So this, the, 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 definitely the move to South Africa was the movement from acquaintance with the suffering of others to acquaintance with the threat this was now to yourself. Because mm-hmm. you were in the wrong place at the wrong time now. And I came to know uh, pastors who were being arrested and tortured because they were even questioning what was going on and people were dying and there was a security apparatus that was super scary. And I was arrested for being a white in a township without a pass. And were you scared when you were arrested? Um, I wasn't very much. I was more scared for the people around me who were South Africans who didn't have uh, U.S. passports. And I somehow felt like um, I'm an American. I don't think they're going to hurt me. But I did, there's some pretty wild stories where I was quite scared, mostly of being at the wrong place at the wrong time because the violence breaks out in the townships. Wow. Um, You, you, you can just get hurt. So, so that was, that was definitely Eddie when I encountered fear of Mm. violence and injustice maybe coming after me. But the thing that was transforming was I met and lived with and got to work with Christians who were no longer afraid. Now, and I say that, what, what, what what I mean is that they had crossed over some line where they had now decided it doesn't matter what they do to me. I'm going to do what I think Jesus wants me to do. And they made that decision and they 
took those steps when there were people around them making those decisions and taking those steps who were being really hurt and in vicious, tortured, terrible ways and, mm. and mortal ways. And yet, what I saw for sure were these Christian leaders who stepped into a zone of freedom and joy because they were no longer afraid. And all around us, the people that we live life with, we just know that for ourselves and for them, our lives are just continually constricted by fear all the time. So much of our lives are just defined by fear. And if you see a human being who is not afraid anymore, that's what I saw. I saw some people who so believed the things of Jesus that they were going to act as if they were true. And now they were no longer afraid. And they could just look into the face of the fiercest peril. And they could just say, I'm not afraid. Do your best or do your worst. And I had a peek at what that kind of freedom from fear looked like. And that, I think, kind of set a North Star um, trajectory for me of, no, that, that is life. Okay. So there's this, that's beautiful. And it, and it continues to pique a curiosity in me about the, the sort of dual narrative that's happening because there's what you're experiencing and seeing, but then it's, what is it doing inside of you? And you said, you know, this is life, but you know, we know the punchline of this is that at some point you're going to start IJM, but at that point, where are you in thinking about your own contribution that will be now out of a different kind of significance, out of a different kind of fearlessness? Like, what do you think you're going to do with what you're experiencing? Well, it was pretty fascinating. So first of all, there was a really healthy just period of time, which I thought I wouldn't be able to do anything. That is to say, I had a sense of my own. I don't even speak any of the language. I'm a just graduated college kid um, thrown into sort of the violent vortex of one of the great historical struggles in history. And I, I have almost nothing to, to contribute. But amazingly, I just fell into a group of Christian leaders who were trying to lead within a violent political context. And they were actually trying to move the vast Christian conscience of the country to uh, overcome and throw off the apartheid re regime and move to a different future. And I had actually had a disproportionate amount of actual experience with things political. Hmm. How you do try to get a message out. How do you organize people? How do you deal with the political powers? What are their calculations? And how can you be one or two steps ahead on the chessboard? And so I just found myself uh, invited in by some of these leaders to accompany them, to give them my perspective of some suggestions of some things that might be done, how to approach things, because they were overwhelmingly religious and church leaders, right? They're not political leaders, but they're thrust into political leadership because the political leaders, the political leaders are either in exile, they're in prison, or they're dead. And so Bishop Tutu, for instance, is an, he's a churchman, right? He's, a, he's an Anglican bishop. Yeah. And 
other church leaders that I was uh, sort of now on the road with as they're taking on this uh, crisis are not people who are uh, schooled in, familiar with, experienced with uh, political engagement. And so amazingly, I did feel like I was able to start to actually serve and help them out in an area that felt more familiar to me than it did to them, at least in terms of the mechanics and the dynamics of, of what was going on. So um, I did actually start to feel, oh my goodness, there's a connection between this passionate struggle and so much for me to learn here and, and to allow myself to be shaped by. But by the generosity and grace of some of these folks, I'm actually able to render a little bit of a, a assistance. So I, I did some practical things like I would involved a Christian ministry that would go out to the rural areas and help with feeding programs and also like building houses in some of the areas where houses have been destroyed during some of the, the, the violence. So I, had, I was doing hands-on things or uh, delivering firewood out into a village to um, you know, families that were, were destitute. So I was both you know, um, doing sort of these hands-on, very satisfying um, uh, uh, activities that were helping out individual people in sort of desperate circumstances of need with some resources that I had access to because I was uh, involved with this ministry but also getting a sense of, oh, there might actually be some connection to this fascination uh, and little bit of experience I have with government and politics to this struggle that Christians are involved in. Hey there, friends. Just interrupting for a moment to give us a minute to breathe, to take in Gary's story, to let our minds rest for a moment, and also just to give you a heads up that the next few moments are pretty graphic. Gary went to Rwanda and had a profound experience there, and he talks about it. And so two things. One, if you by chance have a kid listening to this, which I can't imagine you do, the new activist is not big amongst children, but if your kids are into social justice issues, uh, this is probably not the portion of the show for them to hear, just so that you know that. And also, just letting you know that it may be difficult, but also, you know, I really want us, if it's possible, to lean in because it is helpful for me at least to go outside of myself, to be challenged, to be frightened by what we hear, but to be aware of what's happening in the world because it is only then that we can begin to be part of the solution. So here is the second part of the conversation with Gary Haugen. Take us to Rwanda. Why were you there and what did you see? And I know that that's a huge question, but what did you see in Rwanda? From South Africa and some other things, I ended up going to law school. Um, I'm quite interested in the international human rights field based on my experience. I work in law school for a time for the Lawyers Committee for Human Rights who send me to the Philippines to do some research and work. But as I'm graduating from law school, uh, there just aren't very many jobs in the international human rights field. Um, 
And usually they're hiring country specialists and I didn't have a particular specialty. And I also figured, well, I better try to figure out what it's like just to be a workaday lawyer, especially a trial lawyer. And so I managed to get a job at the U.S. Department of Justice in the Civil Rights Division. And I ended up mostly doing cases of police misconduct here in the United States. So I'm doing my work as a regular trial lawyer at the Department of Justice, cases of massive police, abusive force, racial profiling, etc. And then the genocide in Rwanda breaks out and the the U and after it's all after it's over with and the whole thing sort of passes without people paying much attention to it of course and it wraps the the, the war basically comes to a close uh, towards the end of July August uh, of 1994 and the UN uh, after it's all over wants to try to first of all certify that there was a, a genocide had taken place and secondly set up some sort of process for bringing the leaders of the genocide to justice. Hmm. So they set up uh, a unit to take on that effort. And the, the way the United Nations does most of these things is not, because, is not by having uh, sort of staff on hand that they can use to do that. They take uh, contributions from uh, governments around the world. So I was contributed by the U.S. Department of Justice um, to join the international effort, the, the UN's Center for Human Rights office that they were setting up in Rwanda right after the war, um, and to, to try to bring the some sort of international resolution to to the, to, to this genocide and, and 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 bring some justice. This is super complicated because there's no actual mechanism for that. There's no international criminal court. There's no uh, forum for actually the UN doing this. There's an international criminal tribunal for Yugoslavia that's been set up, but that's for Yugoslavia, not Rwanda. Wow. And so I arrive in Rwanda and go to the Mio Colin, which is in the movie Hotel Rwanda. Yeah. Wow. And man. I'm and when I arrive in Rwanda, I, I go by military transport from Kenya because it's just right after the war. And um, we land at the airport uh, in Kigali, the very airport where the president's plane had been shot down, which is what kicked, yes. is what kicked it off. And um, I then get into a van to uh, drive to the hotel. And I realize as I get into the van, oh, we haven't gone through customs and immigration because there is no customs and immigration. Wow. There's no government, really. Wow. Wow. Uh, of course, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, the uh, Tutsi um, army in exile in Uganda and uh, other surrounding countries had at that point secured uh, power in, in Rwanda. So they were just setting up a government. And when I arrived then at the, at the, at the hotel, there are, I don't know, 50 or 70 of these international lawyers, criminal investigators, forensics experts that are supposed to, we don't know, do what? Uh, We're supposed to try to uh, do an investigation of the genocide, find who's responsible, bring about accountability. But there's no structure set up to do that. And so we're having to kind of invent what to do. But what that means is that actually everybody's just sitting around the hotel doing nothing. 
because there's no structure. And the first leader of it uh, was some lawyer from the United States who came in and said, well, let's do everything the way we do it in America. And that basically offended everyone who was not from America, which is most of the people there. And uh, so because no one could understand what to do because there's no court or forum to which you would bring the evidence against the, the leaders of the genocide. Secondly, lawyers and these investigators, we're all experts in rules of evidence. But the, these are the rules of evidence that we come from uh, in our particular country. So nobody wants to uh, spoil the evidence. So everybody's afraid to actually do anything at all because you don't want to do anything that will turn out to be wrong. So we're just spending day after day sitting at the hotel kind of griping and not doing anything. And so at some point, I get together with a couple other of the prosecutors that I'd gotten to know in our group, and I'm saying, this doesn't make sense for us just to be sitting here. The Rwandan government is getting super um, impatient because there's hundreds of thousands of corpses laying around in their country and, and not being dealt with. There's also thousands of perpetrators of this genocide that no one is going after. And so they're going to, the Rwandan government is going to take their own sort of steps here if the international community doesn't do something. So why don't we put together just a little bit of a plan to how we can take this list of a hundred different mass graves and massacre sites that we have and just deploy to begin to gather the most basic evidence and begin to gather the basic narrative of who is responsible for organizing this and putting this together. And so I sell this little plan to the head of the UN mission there and I'm made the director of the UN's genocide investigation in Rwanda um, and I'm 31 years old. Gary, so like, to actually do this, I mean, like, like, like the things that you must have had to do to execute this plan that you are now the director of at 31 years old must have been um, horrific. Like you, 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 right? Would you have had to have count the bodies? Yeah, it's unspe- I mean, it's unspeakably terrible. So there were two kinds of places. There was massacre sites and mass graves. So a massacre site means that all the bodies are left where they've fallen. And most of these are churches and schools. So I just had a long list of all these churches and schools where there had been no cleanup. And so you would go with uh, the forensics folks and you would just begin to put together the story of how, of what transpired. And so I would just literally with them go through and pick up hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of skulls and say, blunt trauma, male, uh, machete, female, blunt trauma, child. And it's all just from the skulls. And in other places you had mass graves where the bodies had actually been put into huge pits and, but they were so massive you couldn't act, some of them we would try to actually ex, uh, uh, exhume, but there's so many, so tedious and terrible that you would end up just using a backhoe or some other kind of machinery to just dig enough to get a basis for estimating the dimensions of the mass grave and then estimating how many bodies were in it. So it was totally everyday immersion in. They're the remains of slaughtered people. Oh, my God. Um, 
So, <laughs> I want to get to IJM because all of this is, seems to be building to this crescendo. Um, and and correct me because this is your narrative. So I don't I don't want to oversimplify it, but it's building to this. Yeah, tell what's me. so funny Eddie, is that of course for me it doesn't feel like any kind of building to any kind of thing at all, right? Because I have no idea that 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 IJM is actually a thing in the in the future. I mean. Uh, And so that is the sort of the funny thing about this is that all these things in retrospect look like they're building or something. But when you're in the midst of it, it it doesn't feel that way. But that's what's crazy, because I mean, from the very earliest moments of your bio and reading all of your books, it's all building to IJM. But it's like we see God's movement in the rearview mirror more than we see it actually happening in our lives, because even though you are thinking you're going to be a politician, it's all preparing for this this work and the life that you're living now. So it's just interesting that that wasn't happening in you. So IJM is now an organization that boasts some incredible life-changing stats that I would like to share. 21 million people, and I, I'm preaching to the choir here, but I'm sharing this generally. 21 million people. Uh, I, IJM is helping to protect 21 million people globally from violence. 40,000 people um, IJM is responsible for 40,000 people being relieved from oppression. 46,000 officers and officials have been trained just in the last five years. There have been over 1,300 convictions. And more than anything, IJM has is a model that is working, that has been proven to work, that to, to end slavery. When you first came up with the idea for IJM, did you, deep down inside, envision all of that? Or what, what did you think was going to become of this IJM that you invented? Yeah, no. Um, no idea what it would become. No plan for making it become what it has become. Um, we're actually the largest international anti-slavery organization in the world. But when IJM got started, I had very little familiarity 25 years ago uh, with even the phenomenon of modern slavery. Um, what I thought at the time, however, was that it was so curious that there was a Christian ministry that would respond to almost every kind of urgent need amongst the poor. When they were hungry, we know what to do. They've never had access to the gospel. We know how to do church planting evangelism. If they are sick, we can send doctors. If they don't have education, we can help with that. Whatever the need was uh, of the poor, there was a Christian agency responding to it, except for the problem of violence. What if a poor person is suffering because someone's coming at them with a machete to steal their land? Or what if they're being abducted into a brothel? Or what if they're being raped by a bully in the community? What's the... What's the... Christian ministry that responds to that. And so obviously because of my experience in Rwanda and other uh, experiences in the developing world, I had just seen the acute suffering that came to very poor people because of violence. And so IJM was purely an idea uh, with me and some of my friends of Well, if I could do anything, what would I want to do? I would want to actually bring to bear these passions and skills and capacities I have for addressing violence. And I'd like to do it in the most desperate and poor communities where people are most vulnerable. And I'd like to do it as an expression of Christian faith 
and in community with others who share that faith, but to do it in a way that uh, draws people of just all goodwill, uh, any kind of goodwill, uh, into that fight. So it was purely an effort at the very beginning to render direct service to individual victims of violence and abuse. So when IJM started, that's all it was. It was just me, a criminal investigator, and two interns. And we just let Christians around the world who were working in really poor communities as pastors or as relief and development workers or medical missionaries and say, hey, if you see any poor people who are suffering because of, a violent, because of violent abuse and oppression, give us a call. We'll try to actually uh, rescue that individual out of that violent abuse, work with the local authorities to bring them the bad guys to justice, and try to make sure that the, that the survivor has access to really good services to be cared for. And it was, that's it. And if we could rescue some individuals, it was going to be totally worth doing it and if that was one or three or five, and that's what it was in the first few years, honestly, it was two or three people or four or five, because it was just a small band of us. Um, and over time, we figured, well, this isn't really properly about us flying over there trying to do this, these kinds of cases, although it was very gratifying to personally be involved in that. Rather, the idea is, well, why don't we help local Christians form teams where they can do this in their own communities. And so that's what International Justice Mission started to do. And so now we have about a thousand full-time staff in nearly 20 communities that are, as you say, um, rescuing thousands of people from violent abuse and protecting millions of their neighbors uh, from these abuses. But it all started out with simply a vision of bringing the sort of do unto others assistance uh, to individual victims of violent abuse. And that was Gary Haugen. I am so grateful that Gary joined us on the show today and shared his story with us. Two things I'm thinking about as I, as I move away from this interview and consider it. And of course, I always want to hear what you are thinking as well. Social media, all that good stuff. We can chat. But two things I'm thinking about first is just how kind of unremarkable his story is, right? He went to high school. He went to college. And, you know, yada, yada, yada. <laughs> IJM. And I know there was a lot between that. But his story is just so marked by him being called by God to take his next right step. And those next right steps resulted in the world's largest anti-slavery NGO. I know that that's not gonna be everyone's story, but I think that that can be everyone's goal. Not necessarily start the world's largest fill in the blank, but to take next steps, to, to not be scared and to lean into what God may be doing in our lives. I loved the encouragement from him directly and also just by hearing about his life. And the second thing is just how deeply grateful I am that IJM exists. Actual people are being freed from slavery. And here's the big announcement. We would love for you to join us in that work. We talk every week about ways that you can be a part of IJM. You know, we've so many of you have signed the letter, which has been game changing. Thank you for doing that. You could still do that. But this week, I want to ask you uh, to do something, and I would like you to become a freedom partner. What is a freedom partner? A freedom partner is an opportunity for us to give to the work of IJM. 
we give $24 a month or more. And that isn't an arbitrary number. That's actually like a really helpful number that we know that if everybody who hears this gave $24 a month, we would be able to do a lot more work. But I would ask everybody that's listening to The New Activist to become a freedom partner. I would never ask you to do something that I don't do. My family, we have been freedom partners for a long time. And it is just so rewarding to know that for the cost of a dinner, or realistically the cost of a <laughs> sometimes a half a dinner, we are able to end slavery. I believe wholeheartedly and I'm leveraging my life to the fact that IJM is doing what it says it's doing. It is ending slavery in our lifetime and I would like you to help. So if you would go to newactivist.is forward slash freedom, how about that one? New activist is freedom. You can go and you can sign up there to become a freedom partner. And here's the big announcement. One person who signs up to be a freedom partner will win. I, I think this is a prize. My insecurity's coming out. I think this is a gift. <laughs> One person will win a live taping of The New Activist season four in their hometown. Rules and regulations and all of that stuff are on the webpage, but... For one person that signs up to become a freedom partner, you and I are going to figure out how to bring the new activist to your town to talk to someone who is doing something great in your town or your church. And uh, I think it's going to be really fun. We'll get to hang out. Rules and all of that are on the website. But for now, go to newactivist.is forward slash freedom. Read all about it and sign up to become a freedom partner. I hope we get a lot of people to sign up. It's really important. Really, really important. Our music today was brought to you by The Brilliance. The Brilliance are on tour. You can buy all their merch and everything at thebrilliancemusic.com. We are on social media, New Activist Is. If you would like to learn more about Gary Haugen and all of the things that he is doing, the best place to start would be to go to ijm.org, or you can connect with Gary on Twitter, at Gary Haugen, H-A-U-G-E-N. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Gary Haugen, our colleagues at International Justice Mission, as well as the relevant podcast network, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends. Thank you for listening to the New Activist Podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. And for more relevant podcast network shows, check out the podcast section at relevantmagazine.com.